This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Today to listen to and honor Mr. Earl Palmer, uh, one of the great drummers of our time. On behalf of ASMAC, we welcome you. Glad you're here. And so, as bad MCs used to say, without any further ado, Mr. Earl Palmer. Perception than he did. So I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, I'm very honored and pleased that ASMAC decided to have me come and talk to you all. And uh, because I'm, I feel very, very big today because I'm here speaking to people who I listened to for so many years. All your composers and arrangers that I worked with and for all these years that the reason that I'm here today is because you guys hired me and let me do what I had to do to become what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and I want to thank you all so much, so very much, because I had seven children and maybe all of you don't know about, but uh, they're all through school, thank God because of so many of you here who helped me do that. From leaving New Orleans with not very much education, because I already knew what I was gonna do from the time I was four years old, be in this business, which means I've been in this business now pretty much 70 years. Yeah, I'm 78, and I started at four years old. Coming from New Orleans, I, long before I even knew what a drum was, I was a tap dancer during the New Orleans era of dancing up and down Bourbon Street for tips, and then going into vaudeville with my mother and my aunt. And from that end, uh, hence this book on an autobiography on my, I'm not pushing this for sale. Are you giving them away? No. <laughs> but uh, in this book is, everything I've ever done, uh, and a lot that I thought about that didn't do is in this book. But it's because of all of you here who hired me and had confidence and faith that I could do your job for you. And I appear to have done it fairly well. To some of you, anyhow. But uh, well, that Sid Feller used to complain on the Ray Charles dates all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but Sid is a natural complainer anyway. <laughs> that the other Ray Charles, Ray. Oh, <laughs> I'm the other Ray. Charles. No, <laughs> you're the one that uh, you're the one that helped me get where I am. You're one of those people. But uh, 
And now, from that beginning, as a tap dancer for tips, I went in a vaudeville with my mother, and I'm pretty sure this is more or less why Smithsonian decided to do this autobiography, because it's, it's not a book about drumming and how to drum, but it's a book about my life, and I'm very proud of that, because I've been told it's been a very diversified life and, and uh, an exciting life, having done so many things that's in this book that I didn't think was very much, but when you reach a certain age and you begin relating all these things, you come to find out, how did I get time to do this if I was doing that? In those days, you were young, and you were able to do a lot of things at the same time. You didn't realize it until now, when I'm older and tired. I know why I'm tired now. I was doing all these things. And uh, I recently retired January 16th and immediately took sick after the first set that night, my last night of playing, and I went to the hospital. My son, one of my sons, and uh, my doctor, who's a very good friend of mine, a good doctor and a good friend, I'm very fortunate. And we travel together, he hangs out with me, and I have to calm him down from looking like a valet. I say, how can I tell people you're my doctor if they think you're my valet? But he loves music and musicians, and he loves me, I'm happy to say. And based on that, I went to the hospital and he found out what was wrong and it was a bacterial infection in my stomach. And he found out after the test what it was. And you want to know what a good friend is, it's a doctor that will sign you out of the hospital and say, I'm not going to leave you here for a couple of days of observation because every doctor that comes in the ward is going to look at your chart and look at it and just put it down and walk out and make $300. And he said in two days you will have spent $3,000 and uh, they will have done nothing for you. Maybe not even know why you were there, but nevertheless, he saved that. But that is a good friend and we're together all the time. But I'm fine, I'm all right now, thank God. So uh, let's get back to the vaudeville aspect. And I think that's pretty much why they wrote this book because Based on, as a musician, it's a book about me more so than about a musician, but for them to get interested, I think it was more or less the vaudeville aspect of being a person who went through that at such a young age. And I remember so much of it because it was my life then as opposed to going to school like most kids. I did, not very far, but I did. Luckily, I knew what I was going to do all my life, and it's all I ever did all my life was being this business, first as a dancer, and then as a drummer. Being a somewhat precocious kid, I copied everybody I saw. The drummer, the piano player, and I never played piano, but I stand in mind when the piano player got drunk. So, and I played the drums when the drummer got drunk. Seems like everybody on that show was drunk. So, this was, incidentally, this was Ida Cox, some of you may remember her great records in her show, the Dark Town Scandals, it was called. And from there we went to Georgia Minstrels, uh, Evan C. Miller's uh, show. My mother and my aunt were sister team. They sang and danced, and they taught me how to sing and dance. And the Scots burned out the vocal chords, but I could still <laughs> dance. <laughs> now, but not too strenuous. But being in Vaudeville at the time and remembering it because it was my life, I think uh, the research 
told me a lot that I didn't know about myself and the surroundings that I was with. You know, some surroundings that was I was in. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about music before I went to music school on the GI Bill and learned how to read, write. And uh, I came here from that beginning as an arranger and an A&R man, which became a producer. The A&R man didn't get no points. When he became a producer, he started getting points. <laughs> and unfortunately for A&R man, there was no points involved. So, but I made it, you know, through so much work. And uh, I'm supposed to be the most recorded drummer in history. And people ask me about that, and they say, well, uh, now I hear you for the last 12 years I've been playing jazz. And they say, well, if you was a drummer that supposedly started rhythm and blues, which became rock and roll, I'm sure most of you know, and now you are you the most recorded drummer as rock and roll? I said, well, according to being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yes. And they said, well, uh, are you or are you the most recorded jazz drummer? I said, no, I'm not. They said, well, who is? I said, I think Billy Higgins is because Billy traveled all over the world doing jazz with many artists because he never had his own group. And they said, well, then uh, are you the most recorded? rock drummer since in the Hall of Fame. I said, well, I, I don't know. I said, it could be Hal Blaine, who many of you know also. And they said, well, then you're not either one of those. And how are you the most recorded drummer in the business? I said, well, that's because Hal didn't play any jazz and Billy Higgins didn't play any rock and roll. <laughs> so uh, based on, on that fact, I, I have now retired and I still do some clinics for Yamaha and the NAM organization and that's pretty much why I retired from clubs and so forth because this was very easy because at my age I don't play very much on the clinic I think it's important that they have a question in it. Well, 
and another dear, dear friend of mine, the great drummer himself, Mr. James Gadsey, and many other drums of mine, like right here, who I just saw recently, the Taj Mahal, and really impressed me. And I, I'm, I feel fortunate that I can constantly be impressed by someone else who's always telling me how good I am. You never stop learning, you know, you practice like a doctor, you never stop learning medicine. You never stop learning music if you love it. You can learn from anybody, anytime. My biggest teacher was the late Shelley Mann, who was a wonderful, wonderful person, one of the funniest people outside of big missing. <laughs> one of the funniest people that I had ever met, one of the most talented drummers. I admired Shelley long before I came here. And forgive me for rambling, but I, I don't have any prepared text, so I'm trying to just tell you what I think, and mainly about people that we all know and all admire as great musicians and great people. Shelly Mann was a great inspiration to me. My first meeting with Shelly was in New Orleans. It was Shelly's last trip with Stan Kenton. He and Flip Florence, his wife, who was a rocket when Shelly met her in New York. And uh, I wanted to meet him, and he, he was standing outside of the municipal auditorium in New Orleans, and this policeman had been telling me, boy, get back, get back, boy. Because I kept, every time the stage door would open, I'd head toward it, he stopped me. And uh, when Shelley came out the door, he came out with Chico Alvarez, next to the trumpet player, that was in Ken's band at the time, and Sir Sharlock was not, no, not Sir Sharlock. Uh, what was it? The baritone player okay. Who was it? Chioga. And he headed toward the other side of the auditorium. And I said, Shelley, this started out across me. And this cop called me in the auditorium name. And Shelley turned around and heard that. And his words were, Oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. And I'd never met the man before in my life. I've never forgotten that man. And now as an older man, when we cry about market openings or anything, every time I take a shot, I cry, I think of that. Before ever meeting this man, he saw a crisis that he could avert, and immediately he did. And I've loved him for that to this day. And Flip being a dancer and I being a tap dancer, we were one of the co-founders of the LA Jazz Society. And, uh, they call us Fred and Ginger because we never did a routine together. We've always been threatening to. It's also a great lady. Shelly used to say, if I was a little older, I'd call you my son, but I don't know what the general public would say about that. <laughs> or Fred would say about it. But uh, he used to treat me like a son. And uh, I kind of looked at him like a father because what I wanted to do, he was already doing better than anybody that I knew who wanted to copy. And he was a great man. And he sent me on a job, one of the most important jobs I'd ever been on. And he told people below, he said, if he can't do it, I'll do it. I'll come in over the other. And luckily I did it. And uh, things like that, so he did. We worked together on some of the roots thing that I've been watching lately. Black History movies and only, and they were showing a lot of movies of that kind. And I think of Shelley all the time because with his humor, he sometimes asked his uh, Gerald Freed said to him, 
You know, I don't know which one of you guys going to bring it because we were doubling back and forth, you know, from percussion to drums. Neither one of us were percussionists. And the percussionists didn't like that very well, <laughs> especially Lou Singer. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He hated all of the percussionists. We used to say, Lou, if you were an octopus, you'd be justified to hate all of the other percussionists. You'd do all they would. But he didn't like anybody. But he was, he was a great, very kind to me. Another instance I might tell you about. Uh, but anyhow, when Lou, Gerald Freed asked Shelley, he said, uh, I don't know which one of you guys would be playing this cue. He said, but I want something from like, 1932, 1920s, in that era. And Shelley said, yeah, okay, we can do that. And then finally, he said, Jerry, what month? That was Shelley. But they called me to, when Shelley died, I was supposed to meet him at Nicodos for lunch that afternoon. I think he was working out at Disney. And uh, when I heard about it, the radio station asked Bob Manners. I was Secretary of Treasury of the Union at the time. Anybody at the Union would like to come on the news and say something about Shelley. And Bob Manners knew that I knew Shelley and how much I loved him. Suggested that I go and talk on the news. Uh, so I did. And I told that story that I just told you all about Shelley in New Orleans. And that redhead lady who was on the Channel 9 News, she started crying and she had to leave the program so she could come back on. And I had to leave for a moment myself because I was crying. <laughs> and the other guy, he, uh, he turned around and said, well, maybe we ought to have a memorial for Shelley here on the station. We already got the people crying, so <laughs> just had, had a memorial to it. And that had a little human, took us out of our doldrum. But Shelly Man was wonderful, wonderful man. He's the only other drummer that I've heard of that didn't have anything bad to say about Buddy Rich. <laughs> Learn that Buddy Rich, you began to put Buddy Rich over here, and then you began to evaluate other drummers, mainly because of Shelly, because my whole idea was, man, he don't swing. Shelley said, if you could play like him, you don't have to swing. <laughs> I said, okay. And he was right. He was right. This, he is, and I'm lucky to say I was a, a friend of Buddy when I was around him because I felt a mutual respect from him because I never ran up to him and told him how great he was. He knew that. If anybody knew how great he was, it was Buddy. <laughs> but I always asked him how he felt. And he appreciated that because he was always sick from one thing or the other. The strongest little man I've ever seen in my life. He, he took me in his dressing room one day at Dante's. He played an engagement here at Dante's. And he took me in the trailer that he had next to the Lord Wizard and showed me the adhesions down his back from the scar where they had removed those, you know, some of the vertebrae or whatever it was they did to his back. And it was just one huge welt all the way down this man's back. And when you see him sitting on the drums, in a curve like that. You see, how come that thing don't just split wide open? And he said, because I'm too mean. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a wonderful man. But yeah, first of all, I'd like to say if any time anything that I said here 
before we go further, if there's any questions about it that anybody, I don't mind any eruptions. And I'd like very much for you to ask me because this is the way I try to operate. I'm better at that than, than relating other things. But I also want to, while I'm thinking about it, another great, great arranger that I've worked for a lot and was a friend of his son here, who I didn't recognize at first until I got up and walked over and hugged him. Shorty Rogers' son. Milk Rogers, my son. This is a man, last time I saw Michael was at his dad's funeral. And uh, there was a funny story that I was relating there. I think everyone would like it if you knew Shelly. I mean Shorty. And another trumpet player that I'm sure you on would know. That was Al Pacino. And in the business, everybody knew if you wanted a rest, you had to get Al and Shorty into a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and we did a session at Capitol one morning. To me, one of the finest albums I ever participated in was a thing that Shorty did called Gospel Mission. I don't know who remembers that. I don't know Mike remembers it. But this was a flag wave. Every tune in it was a gospel tune. But it was flag-waving tempos. And as I was telling Ed Dicker, pianist and composer, a dear friend of mine who's today here, who worked with me when I had a trio until last January 16th. Um, this uh, session was, for whatever reason, was on a Sunday morning at Capitol. And uh, I forgot who the producer was. Who's the producer? Nick Benet. Nick Benet. Remember Nick Bonet? Oh, sure. Was a producer. And uh, he loved Shorty, so I think Shorty, the guys he wanted to get would not be available until Sunday morning to get everybody he wanted. So we wound up doing it. And I can't remember, I was asked who the rest of the rhythm section was. And I can't remember who they were, to be frank with you. But then again, I'm 78. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, they, we, we were all hungover like mad from being in Dante's that Saturday night. And Shorty knew that. But Shorty was so sweet and he wanted to get the best out of the musicians. He probably went through a lot to get those guys there, so he wanted to get them at their best. So we decided every time we wanted to get a rest, we'd tell Al, sick of Al, and Al would say, Shorty, at bar 135, is this will be natural or be flat? Shorty would get the score and say, well, now, this looks like it's a, it's a B flat. He said, well, I thought it was B natural. He said, well, you didn't look at the key signature, Al. And he said, yeah, I guess you're right. After he's procrastinated long enough, he said, you ready, guys? Trumpet players are great musicians. But we did this session. I do remember Flash Johnson did all of the, the solos, more or less, on that. But uh, that day was, it was one of the favorite albums of mine. That and another album uh, done with Neil Hefty uh, was Sinatra. Sinatra and uh, Swinging Brass was a very good album that I often talk about when people ask me in interviews what my favorite albums. And there was another album that Benny Carter had stopped writing for a while. So Sarah Vaughn begged him to come out of retirement and, and do this album. 
It was called the explosive side of Sarah, and it was based on tunes that lend itself to doubling the tempo, and it were all things that you might think was a ballad, and then they would double the tempo, uh, double it and then double again, depending on how slow it was started. And this thing exploded when it got to the last two or three choruses. And as I was saying to Ed, this is when I was young and I played fast. Now I tell the kids, let's play this tempo. And the kids say, can we play this? I say, son, I've played fast already. <laughs> <laughs> I want to last three courses, not just play three courses. <laughs> but anyway, uh, those are the albums that I always think about. And another album was done based on all of the tunes from a Broadway show called uh, Golden Boy. This was with H.P. Barnum. And there was some great tunes on, on that, and H did some of his finest arranging. I don't know how well you know H.P., but H.P. is a fine arranger and composer, but uh, he's not very well known for doing any jazz arrangement based on what he's mostly known for, rhythm and blues, blues, rock and roll, now some gospel things, but this was one of the best albums I ever did because it was his diehard uh, attitude about doing this strictly jazz, not lean toward rhythm and blues or rock or anything, and it was wonderful. H did a wonderful thing on that, and he did some great stuff with Blue Rawls, too. But uh, some of the fun music I did, I used to sub a lot for Frank Cat on shows like Green Acres and things like that, where we would try to sit there and do the time and everything, but our leader and composer was always in a hurry. And then we found out, because he wanted to do two or three shows in one day, and break records in how fast he did them, big busy. <laughs> and we do three shows, and they say, well, why are we doing, why are we going so fast, so you don't have to come back in here for another two weeks, big busy. <laughs> the saw guy wanted to go home faster than the musicians, and kept you laughing all the time during the day. You haven't said anything funny to me yet today. Oh, wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. I also want to mention a, a man who I didn't know until I moved here. And when I moved here from New Orleans after going to music school, I studied a kind of arranging that was based on what I found out was a system that he had created, Spud Murphy. I studied Schillinger in music school in New Orleans. And when I came out here, that was just a part of what Spud was responsible for. Thank you, Spud. You're welcome. To learn what I was doing after I got here, across the board table at the Union. <laughs> anyway, um, anybody got any questions about anything I've said so far? Yes. Yes, I yeah, have Marvin. a question. I just want to find out how the big physical recipe fight. And you played an album with him. Mm -hmm. Neil Fuller, 65 or 66. Oh, the man from Monterey, yeah. yeah. How, did, how did that come about for you, and what was the session for life at that time? Well, the sessions, as a matter of fact, Gil Fuller wrote this, but the Joe Wilson was on it. It was kind of a, uh, Joe Wilson was kind of a, not a contract actually, but kind of a go-between, because Gil Fuller knew many guys, but he didn't know all the guys that was on that that album. That's, as a matter of fact, that's how I got on the album, because I didn't know Gil Fuller prior to that album. Gerald Wilson recommended me for that album, but I didn't know Dizzy. I hadn't worked with Dizzy, but I knew Dizzy from his visit in New Orleans, 
and then visiting out here many times, and and uh, that's how I got on that album. That was also one of the proud things. I'm speaking of things that was mainly jazz because my forte and people know about me is based on rock and roll. Well, I got seven kids through school playing rock and roll, but uh, ever since that, I've been playing jazz because that's what I that's that's the music. Let's face it, folks. This is the time of rock and roll, but how can we compare rock and roll to what is the music that has created all of this other music? And even composers who are very serious composers, if they have any respect for music other than what they write, it's jazz and not rock and roll. Now you can have, I have all the respect in the world for rock and roll because I put seven kids through school in it. But I couldn't have did to play jazz because I was, in my estimation, not that good a jazz player. I always had a bunch of people I admired that played jazz because I was honest enough to know who was great and who was not. But they were playing what I wanted, and I had great respect for all of them who were good. But uh, uh, rock and roll is a music that I enjoy playing it when it's really good when you're sitting in the studio and you're playing what these kids later go out on and perform until they learn it. And then they never put our name on the record during those days. Because they didn't put those kids' name on the record, but they didn't know who we were. And uh, <clears throat> now they know who everybody is in the band. There is no star in the bands nowadays. Everybody's name is known and everybody makes a lot of money. Which is okay. Kind of okay, <laughs> but, uh, but but at any rate, uh, that's that's just the way of the business. But uh, I feel very happy to have played good music written by good arrangers and good composers, and and knowing that what I am better known for was only because I choose to play it, because I realized right off the bat that you can't make any money standing on the stage playing jazz. And those days, I'm talking about in the 50s, 40s and 50s, which are back to the audience, which is what jazz musicians, they didn't market the music like it's marketed now. It's marketed now easy because that's the music to market more or less. But uh, I always figured uh, what was more important to me was my life with my family, and to get those kids educated with an education that I never had and uh, always wanted. I think I might have been an architect if, if I had been able to go to college because I love buildings. I first went to New York. I looked at the Empire State Building from my back hood. I thought I was bending backwards. But, uh, but I'm, I'm not happy that I didn't because there's many other areas that I needed that formal education. But there's also areas that I appreciate and love that would have suffered, I know would have suffered for that, because I was able to put all of my time and all my efforts into what I was doing, as opposed to the time and efforts that I would have put into getting a formal education, because I, I, I hope most of you realize that I'm a person that I, when I am called to do something, I don't feel it's done right until I'm satisfied with the music sound is good. And having done a little 
arranging and so forth for Latin records when I first came out here. Uh, I know when it's right by other musicians, even if it's not mine, even if I know I can do better, but I don't, I wouldn't let a project, as you know, many of us like myself and Hal, and the Billy Strange that turn, turn him on and he takes over the record day, we weren't satisfied unless things were right. And we had the leeway by many of you to let us stop dates after it's been counted off and we stop it. They knew that we wouldn't be stopping the date unless we knew something was wrong that they didn't hear. And uh, I appreciate having that, uh, that leeway to do that because it would save a lot of time on the guy to have a good take and we'd impose on the other musicians. Personal wise, you see, it was on a date one day where I told a guy, we told all the guys, I said, man, we know this man don't have a good take. We're going to do another take with this. Support me to the union if you want, I'll handle that. But let's walk out here feeling like, man, and give this man what he's paying for. And it's happened a number of times with myself, and I know we're out black. I don't know so much about Billy Strange doing that. But uh, this was important. It was great public relations for not only us, but for the musicians also to work with David. If you remember correctly, a lot of musicians came out here from New York during those days. That brought the New York aspect to Los Angeles when producers and arrangers got so much cooperation out of musicians and they attempted to break that down. We didn't do this in New York. We didn't do this at New York and stuff. I said, why did you come here? And uh, because we got along with the people we were working for. And uh, many times we were late for days because we never got hassled about it because you know, Sid would know that we were late on his day, so consequently to finish his day, we were going to be late somewhere else. And it would happen to be big state or something. He would know that we were going to be late on another day because we gave him another 10 minutes or 5 minutes. And it, and it worked out. It worked out because none of us was ever charged for overtime. Because what overtime was cost, if it was our fault, we always knew that we were helping somebody. And I have to say that about Hal Blake. So then we moved back to Palm Springs lately and said to tell him, one of just hello for him, those of you that knew him and helped him. And I'd like to say I used to be told all the time, well, you were Hal can't pray. And I'd get horribly mad when somebody would tell me that. And so I didn't know who could pray and who couldn't. So I get insulted by that. I didn't need those packs on the back. I just felt like uh, Hal was wonderful job. And still is, because he's still working, I understand. But I hated those kind of things. So let's don't get into Phil Spector. In the interest of, this is, I don't consider my speaking, is a very formal thing, because I like to talk about people we all know. I don't want to just talk about the good guys, because there's been a lot of really terrible people in this business, as we all know. <laughs>
if you do that. And then you can sit back and watch your children grow and your 22 grandchildren. That's why I leave town on Christmas. <laughs> and I leave the responsibility to their parents to let me know when the birthdays are that I remember. Only thing I remember is their names. Birthdays are. Hell, I don't remember mine half the time. Maybe that's the nicest way I could spend these last few years. And coming back here and hanging out with you guys on some Wednesdays, I'd just like to thank Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.